grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, it's Joe Sparrow and in this episode we're in for a treat. Our guests today are a mother and adoptee who wrote a book about their reunion experience. Susanna McFarlane is an adoptee and author, creator and publisher of some of Australia's most successful children's book series. And Susanna's mother, Robin Luba, taught English and English literature for many years. Heartlines, the memoir that they wrote together, is a fast-paced, warm, funny and at times heartbreaking book. The book jacket describes it as a wobbly roller coaster ride of loss and love, confusion and connection. However, personally, I describe it as a unique and at times piercingly raw look inside of Adoption Reunion. Welcome Robin and Susanna and thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thanks Jo. Firstly, I have to tell you that I loved your book and could relate so much of your experiences back to my own. And what I think makes your memoir so unique is how you wrote it. Can you explain to us how you structured the book and why you did it this way? Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, we've done it as a, as a two-hander, so Robert and I both um, taking it in turns to tell the story. And it seemed to me that, the, that well, when I was um, looking for books to read, there wasn't any anyone that did that. Um, and it seems to me one of the biggest challenges of adoption is the miscommunication and the misfires and the hopeless um, stuff that goes on around that. So the only reason to write a book, I feel, is, like, is to help people. Like otherwise, why on earth would you bear your personal stuff to the world? So um, my kind of persuading Robin to write it was if this can help people, um, then that would be a good idea. And the best way to do that would be to do it together and to be able to show it. Um, and so that's um, how we did it. And using, you know, emails we'd written and then, but then also personal kind of recollections. So we built the story up turn by turn. Yeah. Um, and, and it really works because it, it does give you that sort of back and forth and, and I guess the, um, just the different perspectives of things are going on, which is something that we don't know when we're in the throes of it. We know how we're feeling, but we can never really know how the other person is feeling. Yeah. And I'd, I'd read a book. I think I told you when we talked last, I'd read a nonfiction book about it. And it was incredibly relieving because it basically described someone who was possibly going off their rock up during the reunion experience. And it was so validating in a way for me because I thought, oh, I'm not, I may be going mental, but it's okay because that's part of the process. Um, and as a writer and as a publisher, I kind of know the power of story to give permission to people for their story. So that was my um, 
but I hadn't read one in, in kind of that wasn't theory based. And so ours is obviously experience based. So I thought that was the, um, you know, the thing that we could contribute to hopefully remove, even if we removed one road bump from someone else's um, reunion, that would be great. Yeah. Robin, um, after a brief preface, the book begins with your story of pregnancy and placing Susanna for adoption. Would you share your story with us? Yes. Well, this is Perth, 1964, Western Australia, and it was quite a conservative society and certainly, you know, to be um, an unwed mother was a disgrace, you know, something that you didn't do. But I was also incredibly naive. I mean, I was 24, um, no, 22 at that time, and just was so naive that I didn't really know I was pregnant till I was five months pregnant, even though I had the symptoms, the nausea, the um, didn't get my period. But to show the climate of the society, so I went to a few months before I'd gone to our local doctor and we lived in quite a, you know, posh suburb and he was a friend of the family and he didn't tell me directly he knew that I was pregnant he just kept doing indirect questions like oh well things I didn't know he was talking about um oh you better pick the best boyfriend and marry him I mean I didn't know what he was because I was convinced so convinced was I that what I had done with him was not you know intercourse so I, I couldn't be pregnant and that was I know it's hard to believe and I think some people didn't believe that but it was absolutely true I was that naive and convinced you know that this didn't fit what I'd told of this great mythical thing that um I just thought no I'm not so I continued on um and it wasn't until five months then I thought hang on and I went to another doctor way out of town and he just gave it to me straight with quite a bit of condemnation you know sort of um bit the, the slut you know so you can just get on with it so that's the climate very much the secret it's not it's really is a shame and a disgrace and um you mustn't you know tell anyone really so then when I told my poor parents that of course was for them too and it was really almost taken for granted straight away right we've got this terrible secret this terribly bad thing and it must be kept hidden that was just the assumption um that I that I would keep the baby never came up somehow as a um as an option it would you know go to a better home and we'd we'd deal with this and no one would ever know which of course <laughs> I don't think really quite worked that way um so I was you know dispatched to Melbourne and hidden away basically till it all happened um and the whole thing was really very unreal given that climate given that it was denied and then I never saw Susanna was just going there, total blackout at the moment of when she was going to be born, and that was it. Um, but I must say that wasn't only that social pressure, which was very real, that social assumption, but I was in myself very immature, I think, very self-centred. I had my selfish life that I had planned. Tim didn't want a baby. I didn't want a baby. I wanted Tim. We want. So I have to admit that, you know, I was just very selfish. So it sort of suited me too, in a way, to go down that path. But um, so that's how we did it. And denial set in then and lasted for quite a few years that this thing had yeah. ever really happened. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we did, um, just for our viewers, we did a um, an episode in Series 1 quite early on, on I think it's titled Forced Adoption, and um, and it actually gives a really good um, litmus, I guess, of what what society was like at that time and the pressures that came on to um, women that fell pregnant outside of marriage and how illegitimacy was like the worst thing that could possibly happen to a girl or to a child. So it's hard for us to wrap around in this day and age, those pressures. Um, Susanna, what did you know about your adoption when you were a child and can you recall how you felt about it at the time? Um, I always knew. I don't remember the moment um, that I was told that I was adopted. So mum and dad, you know, it wasn't that was never hidden. Um, and the script was... Um, I suppose what most children would have been told was your mother loved you very much, but she couldn't keep you. Um, and so that this was the best thing. And then where, you know, you're special because we got to choose you. And um, so I always knew. Um, I also knew, I mean, you had to do something right because my younger sister, who was also adopted, we looked nothing like um, our life parents. So every family photo looked like a photo bomb. You know, it was like, who are these two people that keep crashing this, <laughs> this very <laughs> homogenous genetic trio <laughs> that's kind of next to us? So, um, so I suppose it wasn't, it had to be explained. So I always knew, I don't know, can't remember when I was told, and that was what, um, that's just how it was. Um, and I don't remember, I, as a little, little child, um, my mum said that I was furious. Like I'd be constantly asking whose tummy did I come out of, um, and, and which we have in the book. Mum and I had a bit of a square off when I was two. Um, I was quite, I was spoke early and clearly haven't stopped since. Um, and I said to her, are you my mother? It was like across the room. And for mum, mum came to adopting us because she'd lost two little girls in pregnancy. So we were both grieving um, and mum had her own fears about it, um, but she took a deep breath and said yes. And apparently I flew across the room. Um, because I just wanted to be home and I didn't know what home, you know, I was still uncertain. So I locked in. I locked into the mother that was there. Um, and so in the same, in a kind of parallel, the way Robin pushed it away and denied it, so did I because the mother that had me wasn't there and the mother that chose me was. So I kind of locked in and went about my life. And when people would say, don't you want to know who your birth parents are? I was going, nope. I think there's a term for people like me. It's called hostile non-searchers. And it's a little bit like they protest too much. You know, it's like, nope, nothing's wrong here. Nothing happened. I'm I'm, I'm all good. And I continued that way um, until I got the letter from Robin. Yeah. Um, Robin, what led to your wanting to reach out to Susanna and what steps did you take to do that? Yes, well, as I say, the secret was very had been very well buried it was 1989 now um now I had not that many years before become a Christian and I find God is relentless at uh digging up buried things he's not into denial at all so I remember this strange week where for some reason everywhere I turned it was about adoption and reunions I mean crazy turn on the radio look at something in the newspaper some friend came to stay and it came up so in the end I said okay God I get the message, you want this, you don't want this deep, dark secret hidden. So um, I contacted community services uh, and the laws, I didn't know anything about the laws really, but they had just very recently changed enabling 
the contact and uh, they were able to send Susanna, Susanna a letter from me. So my prompt was, I can just say it was <laughs> quite supernatural in a way, but it was meant to, you know, meant to, to do it. Yeah, these things have a way of bubbling up, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, the time you chose not to meet with Robin Susanna and instead you replied with a letter. How did you reach that decision? Uh, so I got a letter. It was weird. I think social services um, were very much on Robin's side, I think, at the time. So I'd heard that the law was changing and, in fact, um, my mum had told me because she was worried that um, my birth mother might make a move and mum saw it very much as a strategy um, thing that would kind of disrupt the family. She she told me every couple of years I'd ask what my birth mother's name was and then I'd forget it, which is kind of weird, but you know, goes to the workings of the human heart and mind, I think. So anyway, so she said the law's changed, it's possible. Um, would you like to contact? And I said no. And then a little while later I got a letter and I got it at work and it was supposed to have this confidentiality band around it saying the letter within has some personal information, you may not want to open it in public. My confidentiality confidentiality band was inside the letter, so I kind of read that afterwards. So, And it all kind of went on slightly incompetently from then. So I read it. I remember opening it um, and feeling sick. Um, mum and dad weren't, I think they were away. Anyway, when the, the, my memory of it is when they came back, I gave it to mum and I saw her face and it just crumbled and I knew I was never going to meet Robin because, and I, looking back over it, um, it was in a way similar to Robin's experience when she was pregnant. It's like, no, this didn't happen. This is going to upset the family. This is going to be a problem. We're not going to do this. And we wrote the letter and I was writing the letter thinking, what information will I give? Um, and mum would say, oh, don't say that, she could find you. It was all about could you be found? Like if I say I went to, you know, Melbourne University, would she search? If I said I went to this college, would she be able to search? So to give information, to be um, kind but not to be, but to try to keep some anonymity. And I think for... For me, it was, again, it was this panic. I can't lose the mother I've got. And I think I'm very monogamous when it comes to mothers. I knew I had one and I couldn't, and I didn't know, I couldn't deal with two mothers. Like it was, a, as we all know, it's a hot mess. I didn't know what to do with two mothers. And I couldn't meet this Robin woman as a friend because she wasn't a friend. So, and I couldn't risk mum. So I tried to write, um, a letter that was saying hello, <laughs> offering up some very ill-conceived Ill notion of forgiveness and saying, but I'm sorry, I can't meet you. Um, and, and that was that. And I, I thought that was that. And, but I remember because Robin had written an address and Robin wrote a beautiful letter, which is also in the book replying, just saying, um, I understand and just think of someone thinking good thoughts for you in the background. And I thought that was a lovely kind of blessing to go off with the rest of my life with. Um, but she'd written her address and it was in Melbourne, which is where I am. And I remember every now and then I would drive past. I would drive down that street and I didn't know that they had moved on. And I would look, I would look for people that looked like me. And I remember putting on my sunglasses, <laughs> you know, so I think I, there was this pull 
that um, was there, even though I was kind of pushing it, pushing it back. But it wasn't until my um, life's mum died that I really decided I wanted to find the other one. Yeah. Mm. Um, that old drive-by, it, um, it happens a lot. <laughs> for me, I know my mum uh, went for a drive with my uncle past the address before we'd actually um, met my mother. And, uh, yeah, and I remember how irritated I was that they'd gone for a drive-by before I had. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take control away from an adoptee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Robin, it must have been a bit crushing when you um, got Susanna's letter. How did you feel? Well, it was. It was definitely a blow of disappointment, you know, just a real flattening thing and rejection. Um, but I could only say in one sense, the only, the best thing that I, I was glad that the balance of power had changed. I felt so much better that she could have the a chance to reject me and not have that awful thing you know that I rejected her I never want to see that at least she knew that I did want to see her so that was the consolation I guess um it was you know I had seen some graph somewhere where it was actually a very small pie chart very small section of the children that didn't want to meet their mother so you know I felt that was a bit <laughs> deflating too I was in that really lowest thing um yeah. but Again, another positive thing in retrospect was it simply would not have worked if we'd hooked up then. I just, we've both acknowledged the whole thing would have crashed and burned very um, rapidly because of who we still were, you know, at that time. And um, so, yeah. But also I just must say my other children um, who I had told and they were very excited about the possibility of meeting this sister and they were also looking out I mean on trams and everything of looking for this person who might look like them and I remember one day you know, one came home and said mum I think I I think I might have seen Susanna that sort of thing so yes it was it was a blow but in retrospect it it, it wouldn't have worked so yeah yeah yeah, I remember um, coming to the city. I lived in the country when I was little and I would look for my mother everywhere in the crowd mm. when we would come to the city thinking she could be in here and yeah. hoping someone would look like me, yeah. Um, and there wasn't a great deal of support around at the time that you guys were navigating this this first no, contact either, was there? And I think, um, I mean, I'm sure throughout the whole process, I'm sure everyone did what they thought was right. Like, you know, way back then in, this, in 1965, they probably thought it was a cracking idea. You know, these, these people don't want the baby. These people do want the baby. Let's just do that, forgetting that the baby actually had a thought. <laughs> and, yes. and, you know, because of the social, oh, you wouldn't, couldn't, you know, um, the illegitimacy, but if one parent didn't want it. So there was a there was a covenant that was made between those parents and the adoption laws effectively broke that um, when they made all the records kind of public, which I think is also problematic in some ways for the adoptive parents. But when Robin first wrote the letter, um, the social security person was very strongly advocating for reunion and she would... I mean, I think Hector's not too strong a word. And I said, I can't, my my mum my and dad are away. I can't talk about it yet. And she said, but your mother wants to meet you. And I said, my mother is overseas at the moment. Like this identity. And I was, I was and that really got my back up because mm. she was calling this stranger a mother. You know, so it was like it pulls on the loyalty 
And I think all the, you know, at 23, mum and dad have done an awful lot of healing work. And this woman blows in and says, your mother wants to meet you. That stranger that's been raising you, don't worry about her. <laughs> so I think that got my, you know, and she would have thought she was doing the right thing. But I, I remember yeah. quite a ferocious conversation. Yeah, so I think probably pushed you lot. into a, yeah, probably pushed you into a bit of a corner at the time too. Yeah, no, she pushed me yeah. away from it. If she had, yeah. I mean, who knows? Um, and there's no point wondering who knows. But she certainly pushed me away because she was showing yeah. no understanding of my dilemma. Yeah. Susanna, what changed for you that eventually led you to contact Robin? My mum died. Um, just as simple as that, I think. Um, and I, when I'd had children myself, I'd, you know, there were little tugs. You know, there were these tugs where I'd drive around this Carlton Street trying to find people that looked like me. Um, and when I was pregnant, definitely it became stronger because I was thinking, oh, that would have been terrible to carry a baby and to have it kick and to have all those emotions that you have and then not. And remember, I'd been told the script that I had been wanted. So I didn't know yet <laughs> that I wasn't wanted. Um, so I was thinking, oh, this is terrible. And I was feeling slightly guilty about the letter I wrote because I think it was cold and it was all aimed at not at, at trying to be polite but not keeping Robin at a safe distance. Um, and once I had kids myself, I thought, oh, that would be terrible. Like I'd be um, really crushed to um, happen. And then, but it was still 15, 16 years later and my mum died and that was obviously um, a period of great grief. And in that grief period, I um, ended up, you know, doing lots of weird things that you do in grief. And I thought, oh, I want to find my birth mother. Just kind of, and within three weeks, I requested my files. And so I think, as I said, I'm monogamous. I could only deal with one mother at a time. Um, and I didn't, I would do, I couldn't risk losing mum, even if that meant denying my feelings that I actually did have that are just repressed to meet the other one. Yeah. So mum dying, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say it's it's such, you've articulated it perfectly how things can happen through life and change. So a hard no may not be a hard no forever, like just mm. for people out there who've tried to have a reunion and it hasn't moved ahead, it, it doesn't mean that things can't shift down the track. Yeah, and and for me it was definitely, it wasn't, I wouldn't I wouldn't dream of calling mum an obstacle, I but I needed to do that relationship well and yeah. I, I wasn't going to risk because she was the one who rescued me. Yeah. So initially you both used an intermediary for your communication and eventual face-to-face -face meeting. Why did you choose to do that? Uh, because it was strongly suggested. <laughs> so I'd, um, I went to, I think in Victoria, it's called Find. And so I'd requested my report. And um, at this stage, Joe, I just wanted, I just wanted to write another letter. I didn't want to meet her in my head, which is, as if you know, quite a weird place. All I wanted to do was write a more sympathetic, empathetic letter than I had at 23. Um, and to say I was sorry for writing that letter and to wish her well. And so I went in and I, I had to make an appointment and I was going, oh, I haven't got time for this. All I want is to get your name and, you know, and this 
lovely um, woman said, oh, no, you come in and make an appointment. I go, oh, okay. And she really was lovely and she was talking, but I was just humouring her. I, I just thought, okay, we'll be polite. She said, well, when you get the report, have another meeting and we'll come in and we'll do it together. And I was thinking, oh, this is really necessary, but, yep. Um, and I kept saying to her, I just want to write another letter. I don't want to meet. I just. But as soon as I got the name and the file and Google, I mean, I'm, I'm also a Christian and I believe it's a God-given talent of mine to Google. <laughs> it's to get on there. And um, I Googled her and I'd found her house within five minutes, you know, and something, all I can say is something that had been snuffed out got reignited and my viscerally, physically, my stomach started to kind of, you know, like everything was like, oh, something's happening here. Um, so I kept following the, the kind of impulse. And thank goodness there was the very wise, um, Maddie we call her in the, in the book, um, and she was guiding that process. And because she'd been there and she'd seen what was happening before and other variations of it, she could help certainly me try to keep steady and so she was, um, I would send her the letters before and she would pass them on and she would talk about it and she would guide me. So it was an invaluable counselling service. And I've read stories how people do it themselves and I, and I would strongly advocate. Um, you don't need, it's such a hard thing to do. Don't do it by yourself when you have these amazing counsellors um, and their only um their only agenda is to try to help you through something that's messy and you don't know what you're walking into. So she was um, totally invaluable because I did go off my head at one point, like, <laughs> and she was very anchoring. And so when it, and then she would move us. So we moved to letters um, and then we moved to email and which was obviously no longer mediated. Um, but then when it came to meeting, she um, was there the first time as well. Um, and the meeting was only supposed to be like an hour, an hour and a half. And at two o'clock or two hours later, we dispatched um, Maddie and about 10 hours later or something, we went home. So, But I would, I would so recommend if it's available to use a kind of counsellor to start with and just as a sounding board for your, mm. your heart and head. Yeah. I mean, we're not all that dissimilar in age and um, and I've got a feeling in this regard we were quite similar in, in wanting to just dive in and move forward with something too. Um, and I didn't use an intermediary and it was, well, I did a little bit just for first contact um, and it was because I didn't want anyone stopping me from going really fast into what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very wise of you to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, she kept trying to pull us back and we kept yeah. surging forward because there was this, well, this, it was like, if you think of electricity, it was like this reconnection. Yeah. And so we were surging forth and she was constantly going, oh, why don't you just think about that for a moment? So, yeah, but she was ultimately a slightly failing at her attempt to slow us down. That's <laughs> yeah. still good. So it sounds like you just reached a point where you both kind of knew you didn't need her anymore. Is that sort of, is that why you flew, flew alone at that point? I suppose so. We did start flying alone very quickly, didn't we, really? As you say, she was trying to slow us down, but it was that click of genetics too. We just mm. just clicked and we had so much, our language, our sense of humour, you know, everything just sort of gelled. So it was very hard to, um, and we're both by temperament, we are rather sort of rush ahead people, well, very much so. So um, mm. 
yeah, it was the, a roller coaster ride, but but Maddie was excellent in just the beginning as being a slight break on things. Yeah. So um, you were talking about the communication, the emails back and forth. So there is a lot of verbatim communication back and forth between you that's included in the book. And I told you last time that we spoke that I myself have a thick manila folder of my own reunion <laughs> communications. And uh, there was so much that was similar between yours and my own. But mm. I have to say it was far less excruciating for me to read yours than it is for me to dive back into my own. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that stood out is that deep sensitivity that can be present during reunion and how just one word or the delay of a response or a perceived tone of an email even can be interpreted negatively. How did this play out during your, your uh, reunion? I think that's one for you for me mm. well I think um because the rejection and the abandonment I mean it is such a very real wound obviously and it's very deep and so there is that paranoia and lack of trust that is has to be there um and I think like even in the emails which I don't know how anyone ever could trudge through them but they were excruciating <laughs> because of what you say that hypersensitivity the nitpicking one word you know um misinterpreted and and being done by text but um I think that is the main was the main thing mm. that the paranoia really um yeah oh, and the, the lack of trust <clears throat> so you are I, always looking for the you know mm. for the rejection really and I, I wonder what you think Joe. I mean what Robin says is totally true. I wanted, and I came back to Robin as a child, really, because the only way, and then I had to grow myself up. Um, you know, so my only bond with her was kind of in the womb. And I, I mean, I do, and my kind of the reading and stuff that, you know, I've done and I think you've done as well, is that that's where the bond forms. And, it, you know, so weirdly, Robin's voice calms me. Or if Robin's cross, it upsets me disproportionately to anyone else. So I would have heard that voice, you know, and that would have offered me something. So I think, you know, that's why they call it the primal wound because it's there at the very beginning um, and it really takes some healing. So, mm. um, and, of course, the fear is not totally baseless because that person did leave, you know. So you have to, it is a trust and trust is something that can only accrue over time. So I would be, um, I would, I would hang off every word because I, there was, this was never a normal relationship. This was, once it kind of started, this was something that was a filling a need and it hit, even if I didn't, had nothing to do with I want what I wanted actually because, you know, it was just this, this was this need. And so if I felt that Robin was moving away or I was doing something wrong, I was still trying to seek to keep this relationship in play. So any sign, you know, you're hypervigilant. I mean, all children are hypervigilant to their parents leaving. And a child that's been given up is going to be hyper hypervigilant. Um, and so that, and it can threaten to sabotage the relationship because it's while there is some base for it, you know, I think I say in the um in one of the books, you know, she had form. She did have form, but <laughs> you've got to say, well, what do I see now? Um, and when you're being kind of emotional, it's hard to see that. But if you don't control it, it can really sabotage the relationship because it's must. It's the person who's not being trusted can only do what they can do. You know, they can't give you 50 years 
of mm. um, reliability. They can only do what they do there. So, you know, I think for the the reuniting mother, it's like, well, you have to realise you've got a very damaged, whatever they look like on the outside, <laughs> there's a little part of them that is very, very damaged and it was the separation from you both that caused that damage, so that's going to take some healing. And for the likes of me, you've got to try to learn to trust and let it down. You know, it's that whole vulnerability. We can all watch Brene Brown, but it's true. It, you have to be vulnerable because you open your heart and there's a real risk that they can break the heart again. And it's already been broken once. And most of us have spent our lives trying to fix it. So the risk of opening it up to be broken again is real. So you'll defend that. So it's just kind of step it down, step it down, step it down. Yeah. Which is again why the involvement of other people helps. Like take the heat out, take the heat out. I think um, Robin once wrote in one of the emails, like we've just got to, you know, just take the heat out, slow it down, slow it down, so the emotions can kind of cool. Yeah, we have a saying here at Jigsaw um, that reunions got to move at the pace of the slowest person, um, yeah. because if you're rushing that, that's where yeah. you know that stress steel can break. I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think we're everyone's trying to do something really difficult um and it's not um it's not just the two of you it's a way you know we talk in the book there was a um, section called the ripple effect because it affects everyone mm. everyone has a reaction to it so where you might try to stay in this true you're never just true there's always all these other people and for the good and bad but everyone has a view <laughs> whether or not that view is valid or you know, there's a hierarchy to it, but it's you're trying to negotiate. I think one of the hardest, you know, things in life you can do. Yeah, I agree. Um, so what would you say some of the biggest obstacles or hiccups that you guys encountered along the way? Um, we might start with you, Robin. Well, I think it's just based on what we've been talking about. The you know, rejection, which is absolutely real and there and for good reason. But just, and it's also like a baby. Suzanne said she's came back as a baby. Now, we all know with little babies, no matter, you know, they can't blame them in any way at all because they've got every right and they feel the need, but it just can be very demanding. And babies sometimes cry and they want your attention all the time and it can become too much. And that that at times became like that with the feeling that I could never quite do enough to prove that, you know, I wasn't going to leave. And so I, this is just from the birth mother, although the whole thing was you know, my fault, but still just this feeling that oh, I is always more demanded of me more than I can give because I'm trying, but it's never quite enough. And then if I do one little slip up, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to balance out, you know, that's instantly, it all comes again. So it becomes, well, exhausting sort of a bit and a bit too, you know, um, demanding in that way. And it was interesting that what you just said earlier in the phrase about <laughs> never try to take control away from an adoptee. Now, again, it's like babies, but, you know, much as you love them and want them, they can, you can feel controlled if there's this demand and you and then you feel if I don't do exactly the right thing, then they'll be crying again. So that's just to be quite honest. That was my biggest thing that at just at certain times, 
as I said in the book, became just a bit exhausting, a bit, it's like I think I used the expression, a baby sucking at a breast that no longer had milk in it. You know, it's just sort of, you felt depleted. Now, this is just the negative, the, 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 what, the, as you said, that the problem. Because I really me. need her to move to the positive quite soon, otherwise she'll <laughs> you set see, me off again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Well, look, I've, that's all, that's all that really the only negative, and it's all from the same thing of the, the you know, the rejection, which is so real, and need, that incredible need for reassurance, which at times, me, I just felt I couldn't meet. And yet it was demanded that somehow that I do it or that I, you know, I'd say a word that was wrong. That, do you know what I'm saying? I, do you understand that that was, for me, the hardest thing? I loved that your approach when I was reading your perspective on that, though, in the book, that you met that, you met that demand. You understood what it was. You understood where it was coming from. And you, and you were looking for help to, to, to meet that demand and and you knew that it was important um and I really I really loved that I, I love just how um just how committed you were to making sure this relationship went forward Joe, I was very committed but I was far from perfect in meeting the demands you know that's the thing at times you know I would get frustrated or impatient and that was you know would make the situation worse so um I've never wearied in my commitment that I want Susanna I love Susanna and I was never going to leave but I certainly didn't play it all perfectly the wise calm understanding <laughs> I just sometimes lost it myself and you know it's too much yeah and we were both learning on the fly but I think we're both learners so we were trying to yeah work out what was happening as it was happening I mean I and I was demanding because the unhealed baby part of me had been woken up and was ferocious. It's like a, mm. it was like I was that baby that was left 10 days in hospital and I'd been screaming and I was screaming again. And this time I had a shot at getting the person I was screaming for. You know, so the challenge for me was to see that and to grow myself up and I couldn't grow myself up quickly enough. You know, so there were going to be these kind of road bumps. I mean, I suppose the biggest obstacle for me was the, obliteration of the happy script I've been given um and Robin was um very determined that the truth would be so the truth the story that I'd been told I was loved very much and she'd really wanted to keep me was a lie um and Robin I think for the best determined that I would she would tell me that and that nearly you know threw the whole thing off because it was to actually just being told no I didn't want you was had to grow myself back down again. You know, like I'd been told that for 50 years. That's what I had inhaled. That's what had, had crafted my reality and made it possible for me, you know, to work out what was going on. So that was to take that on board and that, and that probably fed the, the mistrust because it's like, oh, no, I really wanted you. I never wanted to give you up. I was forced to give you and now I'm so pleased. That wasn't that story. Um you know, Robin didn't want me, happily gave me up and didn't think about me for the next 20 years. And if the whole journey is a, it's actually a journey of forgiveness, forgiving the giving up was not as hard, I think, as forgiving the being forgotten about. Um, I think actually when I think back, the realisation that I was forgotten for so long, there wasn't a, oh, my goodness, I wonder what this baby is doing, I wonder what this toddler is doing. When July 14 came around, there wasn't any. That was harder because that was lived. 
you know, that was 20 years lived without caring. That was a, a harder thing, you know, for, to do. So I think that was the biggest obstacle. If, you know, you just confront these realities and then work out what you want to deal with them. And I suppose to our, to our credit and to our benefit, we consistently put the relationship above the kind of past realities yeah. because there were huge rewards to it. Not just, yeah. not just in the healing of a wound, not just in being able to look at your blood sisters and realise that you laugh exactly the same way or that you, I mean, that's a huge gift, but actually the gift of current and future relationship that is just between two people. Um, but it's fought for. It's the most fought for contested relationship. Hmm. And I think... Um... With regards to that forgetting you're talking about, a lot of mothers, I mean, to to live daily in that remembering would be mm. incredibly traumatic and um, and painful, I would think. And and even like birthdays. So my birth mother, I think today she still couldn't tell you what my birthday is. She knows where it is around about because, and mm. a lot of people do report that they forget. They have to forget it. To forget, to remember it is yeah. deeply distressing. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose yeah. it was just the real that it wasn't deeply distressing was the problem. <laughs> but then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So what I loved about you, Susanna, too, is in a book, you are so open to speaking your needs. Like I feel adoption in my throat, like because I find it hard to speak out what I want, what I need, and the anger. So I sometimes feel all of those things, and I sometimes feel it like a clench in the throat. Um, and I so deeply admired your ability to say what you needed and talk out what you wanted and not back away from it. I really, really admired that. Mm, thank you. I, I think it's who dares wins, right? I mean, it is, I did have Brené Brown's vulnerability talk on high rotation and it's exactly, it's an, it's open hearted. And if you stay closed, it doesn't, you'll get a closed relationship. And I think the thing of adoption, everything was closed, the secrets um, and the, the secrecy can still kind of persist. So and I think I'm a bit full on anyway, so it kind of played to my <laughs> my personality. Like it's go, you know, go hard. But if with my own children, it's like no, I want you all the good and the bad. I don't want the sanitized version. So, and I think that's where depth lives, and it's certainly where forgiveness lives because you can't forgive something you can't articulate. You know, you can't wrap it up in this blanket. Oh, yeah, she gave me up for adoption. You have to actually say, this happened to me, this hurt, you did it, I choose to forgive you. Um, little tip really helps if you've got God helping you do it, <laughs> personally, <laughs> because I, I, I don't think mere humans can process the enormity of that um, kind of loss, but you can't forgive what you don't name. I think Fred Rogers, you know, the US kids, um, he says you can't, um, if you can name it, you can manage it. Um, and so that's the kind of first step. Yeah. Um, in our season one introductory episode, we discussed the names and titles that were used to describe biological family and how circumstance can impact this and how time and experiences can soften the importance that we give to them. What was your experience with this? Me? Um, well, mum is a name that you earn, I think. You know, and so I, I, I really struggled with it. Um, so birth mother, and when I was growing up, what names do you put to it? And and, and I think mum and dad, but, you know, this was very much about the mothers is, you know, when I said to mum, are you my mother? Like, I want you to be, um, 
And so when I first met Robin, it was Robin and she was my birth mother and there was this separation. This was something that happened, like almost like a semi-trailer delivery that dropped the child off to its um, kind of home. And that that separation is what I used to not go mental for 50 years. Because if you were told that the person you were absolutely supposed to be with and absolutely supposed to be brought up with, you couldn't, then that would be our, you know, turn to have that kind of trauma. So, but over time... Um, Robin didn't cut it for me because she wasn't my friend, you know, and and she was increasingly acting like a mother, which is what I wanted um, and what I needed, I think. I think that was part of my monogamy. I wasn't ready to go do this world without a mother. Um, and so I wanted to be able to call her mum, but it took a while because I felt disloyal to mum. And then you start to realise, well, you know, mixed families, families come in all these packages and lots of people have, you know, mum, mum. <laughs> so, but that was with me, I think. Um, I don't know how Robin felt about it. And, and there's still to some people I wouldn't refer to her as mum because it, it might rat upset them. Um, but for me, I remember it famously happened in Bunnings, which is perhaps where all great emotional epiphanies should happen. And I was a couple of aisles away. And I wanted to get her attention because we found whatever we're looking for, which is always a miracle in Bunnings. And I wanted to call out and I didn't want to call out Robin. Like it just felt I, I deserved better than that. And I had this, anyway, it took about six months before I could do that. But now I would, I would call her mum and, um, but I wouldn't to other people, you know, because, and that's out of people's loyalty and, you know, to my other mum. And that's why the book was meeting my other mother because they're both my mothers. And I think the thing for adoptees, way back when, none of this was about us. Everyone else got to call the shots. And I think now, this time, we get to call the shots. So if we want to call them mum, you know, everyone else should actually deal with it, <laughs> you know, yeah. because we get to do it now. And I'm only coming into that, you know, because some other, it's like, no, no, we didn't get to do it. Now we get to do it. She is my mother. You might not like that. <laughs> that might have been a breaking of the promise. But I had two mothers and they're both very loved and I get to call them, you know, that. And I think that's, but I think that's hard for us because, you know, that old rejection thing and a big risk because what if we call them mum and they don't answer? So, yeah. I don't know if it Robin, was did you, for Robin. Sorry, did you oh, have anything well. you wanted to add to that, Robin? Um, no, not really, except that it's, it is a process, you know, so you're saying don't give up too soon because it is just a time thing. Even on the physical, you see the last, and it's, I did have the odd thought about Susanna in this time of forgetting, but I would quickly, you know, it was too painful to go there. But my, in my mind, this, I didn't know her name, that was a baby. That's, that was a baby I gave away. And then I get a 50-year-old grown adult. Do you know what I mean? It's not instant that you can join those up. So it is, but it is a process. Um, so that's all. Don't don't give up because it's, it is a challenge for both people. Uh, but that's just one of the things, trying to, well, I think that, you know, that chapter in the book, they're both a, a strap, well, let's face it, a stranger and an adult when we first reunite. And you've getting you've got to somehow join it back to this was, this is my child that I gave away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. 
So what have um, been some of the negatives and positives of writing your story and publishing it? Uh, well, I th I, the only reason we wanted to write it um, was if it would help. And I, I think um, the fact that we're talking to you, the fact that other people have made contact, um, and for me, for adoptees who've gone, I thought I was losing my mind and it was so, I'm so grateful to be able to hear your story because it made me feel less mental. And even just to talk for that period of time, um, you know, I, I think I said before, by share, we connect by sharing our stories and if we can take away the pain or some of the confusion or some of the <laughs> mental, then I think that's the gift of the book. So if, if it's done that, then it's, um, I don't think there's any negatives. The only negatives that people keep saying, oh, you're both so brave. And I think that's code for stupid. <laughs> you're both so brave to share your story. Like I wouldn't dream of doing that. It's crazy. Um, but, again, it's um, we, yeah, if it helps other people, then that's the job done. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's been so affirming of my own story. Uh, you know, mm. I'm someone who's 30 years into reunion, um, but to have had a book like yours back when I was 19 and I was going into it, would have been so helpful because then I would have had some idea of some of the things that can that may pop up for me. Mm. Robin, what about you? What's been some of the negatives and positives of writing and, and publishing for you? Well, actually, I would say there's not been any negatives for me. Um, Susanna had a few more difficulty with her family, the rest of her family. I didn't. My other, well, later on there were there were some jealousies and conflicts for sure. But actually writing the book, everyone with my family was very um, supportive, you know, and excited. And um, so there weren't any negatives. And as I agree with Suzanne entirely about the fact that it can help people, you know, um, like I've got a um, Barbara, this who was a birth mother, and just out of the blue, she said, oh, I was pretty bold. She contacted me and said, Oh, can I come and see you? And we meet up about every two months. You know, she's got a, a son that she adopted out who's in England. And so that's that's lovely. You know what I mean? That um, so just the, the feeling that someone can benefit from the messes that we make is is good. I mean, yeah, that's I would agree entirely. I think we're a funny little crew, aren't we, adoptees and me and I? <laughs> so you need to be with your people, you know. Yeah, there's a great deal of healing that can come from the community of adoption and, and meeting other people who, who you don't have to say anything to. They just get it. Yeah. They just get it. Mm. Yeah. So I've got one final question for both of you. Um, I would really like to ask each of you what the relationship has brought to your lives. Oh, well, I'll go first. <laughs> I, it's still to me I haven't lost the wonder at what seems to me a miracle, really, given everything and all the ingredients that this, and I still can think, you know, can this really be? Are we really back together? And we have a really full relationship now. You know, we, we argue but argue normally. We have very, very close. It's just, you know, she's really absolutely integrated as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's my daughter with my other daughters. And um, so it's there's just, I just feel so blessed and very grateful. And it is, you know, that it's a wonder, really. So it's my story. Yeah, and I the same. It's, um, well, it's healing and it's completing. I mean, this this was my, my, my reality and my reality was half hidden. You know, it's when you see your original birth certificate and it's actually blackened, like it's actually... 
but that was that is part of who I am and it's not just um, my relationship with Robin but I have I have all this other family that I love and love me and for me more is more these people that say you know more less is more I don't know who they are you know for me it's just if there's a chance to have more people um and particularly my sisters um I have a brother and sister who I love um and for me it's not about taking from anyone it's about adding and I have um more sisters who love me and my um you know particularly the ones who are my half blood and full blood they're just like I couldn't imagine life without them not not just for the um there is something incredibly healing about looking into someone and they look the same my um oldest sister who dealt very well with the fact that she was no longer the oldest you know because <laughs> she was like being the oldest in the family but she's learning to accept her new diminished position but you know for, <laughs> for her as well it's a gift you know because she gets someone to look out for her you know so it's not just um, but it's all, it's hard, it's hard one, but man, it's worth it because you just get, I mean, you just get more love and you get kind of, for me, I get anchored and I get to be more firmly home and more firmly me. So and that's worth all the roller coasters. Yeah. Well, look, thank you both so much for joining us today and sharing your incredible story and book with us. I I'm, I'm, know it's going to mean a lot to a, a lot of people and I, I hope they go out to um, to purchase it and have a read and and see the similarities in their own stories or, or get some idea of what might be coming if they're just at the beginning of a reunion. Thank you, Joe. Um, thank you. So check out our episode notes page for links to purchase Heartlines, The Year I Met My Other Mother. And meanwhile, do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form that you'll find there. And please note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313, or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Mm-hmm.